Let me pray for us one more time. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for your truth. I pray, Lord, that the hearts of everyone present would be open to hear. That, Father, you would open every eye and enable us to see the beauty and truth of what you've revealed to us. I pray, Father, that those who are struggling would be comforted, that those who don't believe would come and be saved. And Father, this I ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please help me this morning. Amen. Amen. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4. Jesus didn't suffer on the earth because he was naive. Peter tells a much different story. He tells us the truth. Jesus Christ walked into the cross, eyes wide open. It was never a question. It was never a surprise. It was always the intended path to vindication. In fact, nobody in the history of the world has been less naive about who people really are and what people are actually capable of than Jesus Christ. His suffering was not the unfortunate result of an impoverished traveling evangelist's idealism. His suffering was the divine calling of God that he embraced with all of his heart because he loved people. He loved sinners. He loved us. And he loved the glory of his Father, which the cross and the resurrection would guarantee forever. That gave his life purpose. It gave his life urgency. Suffering and persecution were the predetermined pathway for Jesus. And therefore, beloved, they have become ours. It is not something we try to bring on ourselves. We're not trying to go out and suffer. It's something that if we live with the hope Jesus has secured for us in the gospel, we won't be able to avoid. The world hates the gospel because, mainly because it doesn't understand it. The world is growing increasingly tired of us. And the friction, and in the friction of it all, we grow tired of each other also. The friction is without, it's outside the church, it's inside the church. But the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus are not just monuments we have to look to in the past and admire. They have set in motion the beginning of the end and the battleground for us. The battleground for us in this overlap of this present evil age and the age to come is the mind. It's the mind. Christianity is a religion grounded in thought, in thinking. Peter calls us to arms in this text, but not the kind with recoil. He calls us to a locked and loaded mind. Peter called the elect exiles in Asia Minor to have a mindset that embraced suffering and urgency. And we are called to arm ourselves by the way we think, to embrace Christ-like suffering and live with loving urgency. So now may we hear and believe God's Word together. First Peter chapter 4, I'll read the first six verses to start. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 
for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Our identity as the people of God is the result of what Christ accomplished for us. Our calling as the people of God is the result of how He accomplished it. Suffering. Our Lord Jesus suffered to bring us to God in 3.18. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I'm not going to read it, you don't have to turn there. The writer tells us that Jesus endured the suffering and shame of the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Jesus lived with his eyes on the end. He lived with his eyes on vindication, as we saw in 3.22. Jesus didn't live for human passions. Jesus wasn't shaped by the moment. He was shaped by eternity. That's what made Jesus selfless. Our purpose in 1 Peter continues to be shaped completely by Jesus, by the one who loved us and gave himself for us. This is a big sense here in 4.1. This is the key imperative, the key command that drives the whole section here. Arm yourselves with the same kind of thinking that made Jesus willing to suffer in the flesh. What that is, is tied to the next clause here. He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking because whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. When Peter says to cease from sin, he isn't saying that we have to eventually stop sinning altogether and be completely sinless. Context here, the rest of Scripture won't allow us to conclude that. But what Peter is doing is calling us to the same mindset that drove Jesus. This is what Jesus did. To cease from sin is to make a clean break in what you live for. It's separation from living for human passions, which Peter has talked a lot about in this letter. It's no longer living for human passions, those desires we used to have in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, because we had no hope, right? Those passions in 2.11 that are at war with our souls to try to get us to make this world our home, to cease living for those things and start living for the will of God. It means to stop living for earthly reasons. And what Peter reveals is that that is a matter of how we think primarily. Arm yourselves with a heavenly way of thinking. Arm your mind the way that Jesus did. To live for the will of God is to be convinced in your mind that our only hope is Jesus and this world is not our home. Once that is actually believed... Once that is established inside, once we're convinced that the gospel and everything Jesus promises to us in it is true, we have cut ourselves off from everything that makes the world the world. Jesus was not magic. It wasn't like a show. Jesus lived by faith with his eyes fixed on the future and therefore Jesus endured. 
What is coming is big enough to hold us. That's Peter's rationale here in verse 3. We've had enough time living for things that don't matter. Right? That's what those who are not God's people do, which now doesn't matter. Every single unbeliever is now labeled with the word Gentile, whether they're Jewish or Gentile. An unbeliever now is a Gentile. Peter takes 2, 4 through 10 very seriously. Unbelievers live in sensuality. They live for the moment, is what he's saying. And, And his point here is not really to put them down or even call them out necessarily. He's not talking to them. He's talking to believers. He's making an observation about the world. The world lives for these kinds of things. And we can still hear it all over. Depending on your work schedule and how it, it, it breaks down, if you listen, what drives almost everyone's life? To get to the weekend. To get to your day off. To get to vacation. To get to retirement, maybe. That's what everybody is living for. Just to get to the point where you can finally be free, finally let loose, finally not be controlled, finally do what you really want to do. This is how everybody lives. What drives them? Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Each one of those things, each one of them, were visible markers of the Roman culture in Asia Minor. And even though some of these things are so bad today, still, they're still taboo, some of them, for the most part, And very soon, just with no qualification whatsoever, it's almost anything goes for everybody all over the world. We haven't improved. We downgrade over time. It just doesn't look like it because of things like technology and how civilization looks so much differently. And we look in the past and they didn't have some of the things we had like plumbing and uh, you know, or, or indoor plumbing and all these things, and we just we see it as such a different time and culture, and it was. But the fact of the matter is, is that that that's all covering the fact that at the end of the day, we're all still pleasure-seeking, pleasure-hungry idol factories. It's what we do. We we crank out things other than God that we love and admire and want to worship. That gets worse over time. It gets worse over time. What makes the world the world is its belief that its desires for pleasure should go unchecked because where pleasure is found, where feeling good is found, life and meaning are found. That's why the world is so passionate to enjoy itself in these things because it is convinced it will find meaning and purpose and life in those things. What makes the believer a believer is not that we're better than anybody else or anything like this. It's a matter of how we think. What makes the believer the believer is the belief that living just for the feeling of the moment is insane because Jesus Christ has overcome the world. Peter is saying enough of that. Why live for that? Why live just to get to the next party? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is coming. Jesus saves. Jesus is enough. This isn't a prohibition of things simply because it's more moral to walk this way than that way. It's a call to live in the only way that makes sense now that Jesus' way of life has been vindicated by God. Don't live for the passions of this world. Live for the glory and pleasure of the next one. 
that will make us, what Peter is helping us understand here, is that it's that that will make us unbearable to the world. You don't even have to say anything. When you put your hope in the next world and not this one, you make yourself a grinding gear in this one. You, you make yourself a burr in the world's saddle based on how you think and what you hope in to give you life. It, it's, true Christianity isn't something you can hide. It's going to affect your mindset. So we have to get our minds right. This will make us unbearable to the world. This will make us suffer. Look at verses 4 and 5. Their current source of suffering, where is it coming from? Their friends and family that notice their hope has shifted to something else because they aren't joining with them anymore in the normal way they used to live. Their current type of suffering is being maligned by their friends and family or those that are close to them for not doing it, for not living that way. Just being maligned being talked down to and talked bad about and criticized and insulted and hated. And that's where suffering starts. It starts close. Notice that. Suffering starts close because what actually changes in you is the way that you think and see the world. And the whole world can't see that. The people closest to you can. That's where it starts. And whether or not we will endure through this depends completely on what ammo we have in the gun of our minds. What are we armed with up here? What's in the chamber? Doubt? Fear? Selfishness? A demanding spirit? An overinflated sense of importance? Lust? Craving for money? What's in the chamber of your mind? Beloved, God is not a killjoy forbidding these things because He is anti-pleasure. God is a fountain of living water who knows what true pleasure and satisfaction are, so He's calling us away from what is temporary and unstable and stale and fading. Right? That's the problem. It's that we, we, we try to drink from fountains that go stale, that run dry. Why? Because we think they will satisfy What the gospel does is break the power of bad thinking. That, that, that the reason our worship is misplaced, that's what we're doing when we go to these other things to be made whole and to be satisfied, to be redeemed, saved in a sense. We're saying this God can satisfy and do those things and the real God cannot. Human passions will fool you into thinking that this world is home. There may be nothing harder than to tell yourself no when you desire something. And I'm not talking about temptation here and fighting temptation. I'm talking about what you believe about things. Human passions fool us into thinking the world is home when our minds need to prepare us for being maligned because we live for different reasons than the world does. We seem to think that all the maligning and persecution will come squarely because of what we say. Beloved, the majority of it will come from what you really believe in your mind gives hope and life and satisfaction and peace.
And the only body of information sufficient to train us to think that way is the gospel. Notice where Peter wants us focused for this battle. This battle, we are not fighting the world. Primarily, we are fighting our own minds. He's already made this point in 2.11. He's doing it again. Right? Arm yourselves with the right way of thinking, the way that Jesus thought. Don't worry about your enemies, is what he's saying here. Don't worry about them. Don't focus on them. Don't worry about justice. God will take care of those things. God will take care of those things. That's the latter part of verse 5, isn't it? They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So, we, Paul is, or Peter's reminding us here, God hasn't forgotten about it. He's ready to do it. Right? He's ready to judge the living and the dead. God is ready. He hasn't checked out from that. He isn't unaware of what's going on. He isn't unaware of injustice and all these suffering and he's not unaware of it. What Peter is saying is you need to learn how to think. And, and part of what we need to think is to understand that judgment and vindication and all of those things come later. If you fight and scrape for it to happen now and bring heaven now, not on God's timetable, you will be suffering as he's been talking about for all the wrong reasons. Don't suffer for trying to build another kingdom in this world. His kingdom is not of this world. If his kingdom were of this world, his servants would be fighting. But they're not because it isn't. He's taking all that into account. Everything Peter learned from Jesus. Everything Peter's been saying to us in these last three chapters. This is why in verse 6, because God is ready to judge the living and the dead, that's why in verse 6, the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, those who believed but were now dead. They heard the gospel also. Because the gospel is the means by which people are made ready for judgment. Ready to meet it, ready to go into it. And yes, we still die. We are still judged in the flesh the way that all people are. But for the believer... That death gives way to eternal life. And now those that believe the gospel, that heard the gospel, they now live in the Spirit the way God does, the way Jesus does, according to 3.18. The promise of the gospel, the guarantee of what Christ gives to all who believe in Him, is the ammunition for our minds, beloved. Do you see that? The fact that it's finished, that it's done, what's coming from the future, is what we're meant to arm our minds with. What's the benefit for us in suffering? What was it for their friends who had died that we will live? So we cease from sin. That is, we don't live anymore for earthly reasons with hope in earthly things. We're armed with a different way of thinking now. Notice this, please. The gospel of Jesus Christ is preached to produce that kind of life, that kind of mindset. The gospel is not preached simply as a message that secures our eternal destiny. It is that, and it is mainly that. But it is also a message that alters the way we think and see the world. That's what the gospel does. Listen to Peter continue here with his whole rationale. I'm going to read verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, 
keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, not in your own, in order that in everything God may be glorified, not us, through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we've been called to arm ourselves by the way we think to embrace suffering for two reasons in this text. Because Christ suffered in verses 1 through 6, and because the end of all things is at hand in verses 7 through 11. Peter said that, Peter said this, the end of all things is at hand, at hand, right then, he said that almost 2,000 years ago. Do you know why? I mean, was Peter's eschatology off? Did Peter have a faulty view of the end times and thought the second coming of Jesus was a lot closer than it actually was? I, I, I doubt it. I doubt Peter is mistaken here. The end of all things is at hand because Peter's already made it clear that he reckons time based on the finished work of Christ. Remember chapter 1 verse 20. We saw it. Jesus was foreknown all the way before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for our sakes. Jesus Christ brought the beginning of the end. With His ascension came the last days. They lived in them. We live in them. Every believer in every generation has lived in the last days. They started the minute Jesus walked out of the grave. That Sunday. The victory of Jesus commenced the last days. The end of all things was at hand 2,000 years ago. It is at hand now. So we need to stop trying to figure out whether or not this is the end. This is the end. Stay on topic. Seriously, beloved, stay focused. It is the end. It's not like a puzzle we're trying to figure out. It's the end. right? It, 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 it has been since Jesus rose from the dead. God reckons time much differently than we do. The therefore to the fact that the end of all things is at hand, notice this, is not to hunker down, figure out who the Antichrist is, and pray for daylight. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, in light of that, because of that, be self-controlled and sober-minded. So that here, your connection with God is not damaged. Your mindset, see, sober-minded, Right? Stay on point because you need to stay in communion with God. The deeper we go with Jesus, the more we're armed with the same way of thinking that He had, the more likely it is that we will at the very least be maligned in this world by somebody. The reason to live this way is because it's the end. There's no more time for living for human passions. Paul talks the same way in Romans 12. Urgency requires a life of prayer, doesn't it? Urgency requires that we stay plugged in to a heavenly source. And that's what prayer does. To be self-controlled and sober-minded is to know how to pray. 
Meaning true prayer is the result of heavenly mindedness. It's the result of a fixation on the future. Do our prayers reflect heavenly mindedness or earthly dependency? What does our praying reveal about the way we think? We're going to need a focused prayer life because we've been called, Peter says, to embrace suffering. That's why. Right? It's, it's, it's a walkie-talkie to communicate with base. It's not a, you know, a magic trinket we, you know, as a decoder for getting all these things other than God to satisfy us. That's not what prayer is. And yet above all, above everything in verse 8, keep loving one another earnestly. Remember, that's what he commanded in 1, 22 and 23. Keep loving one another earnestly because since love covers a multitude of sins. Not just the ones the world hurts us with, not just the ones that come against us from suffering, but the ones we hurt each other with in the body of Christ. Human passions are just as prevalent and dangerous in the church as they are in the world because not all of us are thinking perfectly and clearly. None of us are. None of us are, from, including me. The result of that is that we continue to sin against one another, which shows us that sin happens based primarily on what we depend on to bring us hope, doesn't it? Selfishness complaining. We, we think of those things as normal. That's just normal. That's just church. Why? Ask, right? Take it deeper. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you get people in a room together and you're going to fight and you're going to argue. And yeah, this is the new community of Jesus Christ in the world. Like, I get that's normal. It's not okay. We just accept it. Like, well, you know, that's the way it is. It, We've been redeemed, adopted into the body of Christ, and we're still going to fight like cats and dogs, like it's funny, right? We complain, we insist on our own way in things that have nothing to do with the Bible. It, it's The big church fights that split churches and hurt people they are, they are very rarely over whether or not the Bible is God's Word or whether or not Jesus was actually the Son of God or born of a virgin. They're not usually over that. You know what they're over? Somebody made me mad because somebody wanted something different than I did and somebody painted this window that color, I wanted it that color, and they didn't ask. And it just, it, those are the things that split the church and tear it up. Like, why is that acceptable? Right? It all boils down to the way we think. Those types of fights tell us what really matters. You want to know where a church's heart is, listen to what it argues over. Listen to what raises people's hackles. and makes pe- listen, What is it that makes people upset? That's how you know, okay, here's where, where the, here's where the heartbeat of this, here's what's really underneath the surface here. Because when it gets shaken, that's what comes out. You see how when we don't arm ourselves with the truth of the gospel in our minds, we can't even think correctly about the most basic, obvious things. That that somebody should be saying when that happens, wait a minute, this is off. And, And then you defer because ultimately those things don't matter. 
The reason we're called to this earnest love for one another is because it's the means by which we're held together in these last days as a family. We're going to be sinning one another uh, against one another. None of us is perfect. There will be friction in the body. Right? And, and please, please don't, listen, please don't be ashamed by those things if, if you know that you struggle with those things. Listen, beloved, you know what the cross did for all of us that is such a gracious thing? It outed all of us as sinners that are so sinful that the Son of God had to become human flesh to die for us. It shouldn't shock us or throw us off that we might be to blame for something. Right? So don't be ashamed by that. Don't be defeated by that. This, this is what the Word does. It, right, now the, the, right now, the Holy Spirit is working on the way we think. Right now, in this moment, through His Word. Beloved, we need to keep short accounts with one another because the days are evil. We're going to be maligned out there. We ought not to malign one another in here. Peter is not saying we cover each other's sins in a saving way. That's not what he means at all. Only the blood of Christ accomplishes that. Peter is saying that in the family of God, love takes the oxygen out of sin the way a blanket chokes the air from somebody who's caught on fire. That's what Peter's saying here. As long as oxygen is present, a forest fire can rage. As long as anger and bitterness persist and grow, the church is engulfed in flames. If you suck the air out of a forest fire, the flames settle. Paul, Peter is saying, loving one another in the church, earnestly, like for real, is the surefire way we keep fire from breathing. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The family of God is a unique family. Right? We, we don't grumble because we have to be nice to one another. We don't grumble because somebody's kids spilled, you know, chocolate milk on our carpet or fruit punch or something. We, we show hospitality without grumbling. That's what makes it unique. <laughs> have somebody open a restaurant, walk into order five minutes before they close. Right? There's hospitality there. You're gonna be served, but all oh, the cooks in the back and the dishwasher, you, you know, it's gonna, they're going to be mad, right? They're, they're going to go. I've been there. I've, I, worked in a, I worked in a Mennonite restaurant. And if you walked in at 5.55 on a Wednesday, you were getting the look from the entire staff. Just, and that, that's, that's a generally hospitable people. <laughs> the Lord has never been after our obedience to commands that we stick on like a band-aid when the heart is unmoved. He wants His soul-sustaining, soul-saving goodness to so flood our hearts that we find joy in submitting to His commands. They are not burdensome when we realize that He's not accepting us based on whether or not we keep them. Show hospitality without grumbling. Not with a, not as a duty. You know, it's amazing how much hospitality can be done with bitterness and anger and frustration and... Set the table. You know, just... God has never been after this. It's, it's like it's, it's, it's not glorified. When we're serving for that reason, we're serving for ourselves. It has nothing to do with glorifying God. That's why it makes us so mad. Right? Because it's about us. 
not with a begrudging heart, no strings attached. Beloved, we practice hospitality because of the gospel. We practice hospitality because it's right for its own sake. Because we're God's people. Because we know what it is to be welcomed. That's why we practice hospitality without grumbling. Because Jesus was not grumbling when he welcomes us home. They don't resent us for coming and needing his blood. We're not resented by God the Father or God the Son or God the Spirit when we need what Jesus provided. He pours it out lavishly on us in joy. The zeal of the Lord of hosts accomplished salvation. Not his anger. We share God's goodness through our home because God has been good to us. So God's grace overflows into our homes. And here's the thing. Not everyone, please understand this, not everyone can show hospitality in the same way. Please don't be burdened by that. Don't feel like you're second rate as a believer if you don't have the home or the resources to be hospitable in the same ways that other people can. Please don't be defeated by that. That don't discount then the power and the beauty of a welcoming smile or a nice hello. Hospitality is as much a matter of the heart as it is a matter of the home. Right? Don't, don't be defeated by that. Some of us are, are more able to do things, like maybe you can have dinner in your home for a bunch of people and maybe you can't. That's okay. Don't, don't, don't feel burdened by that. Don't be defeated by that. Be a hospitable person I think is the essence of what Peter is saying here. Because you've been welcomed with no grumbling on God's part. Everything is grounded in the gospel. Everything is the result and implication of the gospel. You can draw a straight line between what we're called to do and what Christ has done. Look at this text. Peter here, when he's talking about the church, doesn't give a big list of spiritual gifts, does he? In verses 10 through 11, he reminds us that our gifts are expressions of grace for the sake of the body so that none of us will move from the word. So Peter speaks generally to our words and our deeds overall. He he, he describes the church mainly as speaking the truth and serving one another. So as a part of the body, when you speak, you are speaking as a child of God. Therefore, you are speaking the oracles of God. That's what's intended for our words, no matter when we're speaking them in the body, whether it be here or a business meeting. It's the oracles of God. It's what it's meant to be. That our words bring the very words of life to bear on one another, and those are the words of Jesus. Whoever serves, he says, no matter how that service is expressed, it's in the strength that God supplies so that God gets the glory. If we serve in the strength that we supply, we get the glory. We're not meant to serve in a way that we can take credit for. Our service is not about what we can bring to the table. That's how division and bitterness start. That's what feeds them and fuels that fire. And the, the, the thing is, I, I don't, we all serve only where we feel most able don't we? Most strong, most equipped. We rely completely on our own strength to serve. Right, so no wonder we take such ownership in serving that we constantly hurt one another over ministry. 
We aren't serving in the strength that God supplies often. We're serving in the strength we believe we have. That's why when it happens, if it happens, that's why an insult or a slight can't just be ignored and looked over and covered, right? It can't be covered in love. It's taken as profoundly personal because we're serving. This is how I validate my Christian existence is by doing this thing. If you don't appreciate it, if you don't honor it, if you don't take it from me, you're ruining my Christian identity. You're ruining everything I put my identity in. You see the importance of thinking clearly in the body of Christ about what is true, about where identity comes from, about where hope comes from. Don't set things up so that we get the glory. Nobody does that on purpose. I hope not. But I I think the reason we tend in in any church, again, any church, that we tend to get so cranky and and bothered and annoyed with everyone is, is, is because our service is in our strength for our glory. You see, love... Love has to be there to cover a multitude of sins like that. Everything in the church is set up by God so that our souls are preserved and God gets all the glory for it. That's verse 11. The glory of God is the goal of everything. That's meant to keep all our eyes on Him and off of each other. Right? That's the only way to love and serve people with a pure heart because hope purifies our hearts. It enables us to serve well and to serve with love and to serve for God's glory. The glory and dominion in the church belong to one person in the church. That's the Lord Jesus Christ in order that God the Father may receive all the glory. Beloved, can we see what Peter is saying here? Can we see the importance of knowing how to think? Of knowing that we need to believe that we have to question our own conclusions and assumptions so that we think in a Christ-centered rather than a self-centered way. And we lean on our own understanding so much because God is not being acknowledged by our minds. He's being assumed by our minds. And the, the hard fact is we're not smart enough or talented enough to run this thing called the church. We need to make way for Christ to run the church. We have to loosen our grip on it. We have to loosen our grip on it and leave it to Him, entrust it to Him as our minds are riveted by the beauty and the sufficiency of Jesus for us. Church isn't an avenue for us to express ourselves. It's not an avenue for us to take ownership of whatever we want to make. That's why our semantics are so crucial. That's why our semantics are so crucial. If we think of church primarily as a place and not a people, we will automatically think of ministry as a task and not a privilege. Tasks have to be completed. So when that's the mindset, when that's the thinking, people become a means to an end for the sake of maintaining a building. Our thinking needs changed if that's the case. Our approach, our assumptions, right? Our sacred cows, they have to be questioned. It all needs filtered, beloved, all of it. Everything we are needs filtered through the reality of what we proclaim. So it it isn't that the preacher tells you everything to do, right? It, It isn't that we don't run the show, is what Peter is saying. 
Peter is so practical here, it's amazing. His instructions are all based squarely on the fact that the end of all things is at hand. Now, when you see that at the beginning of verse 7, our minds probably think, oh, therefore, you know, or, or the end of all things is at hand, therefore, we're thinking what's going to follow that is big stuff. Well, if we're, we're right up near the end, my goodness, we're going to need uh, earth-shattering things, heaven-rending, uh, heaven-rending things, big things, right? Urgency, major impact. And then the call is to prayer and love and hospitality because it's almost the end. That's amazingly powerful. Serving those in front of us because the end is at hand. Loving one another well because the end is at hand. So since the end's at hand, uh, make dinner, bake cookies, say hello, have a welcoming spirit, (coughs) smile, have people around your table if you can, for who knows what will be accomplished by such things. Right? I I fear sometimes that that what we've done, and not uh, it's the rhetorical we, okay, is make ministry such a big thing that only the best of us can actually do it and the rest of us are stuck with the menial tasks. The end of all things is at hand, so be simple and be focused. That's the calling of the Bible. Washing feet won't make the evening news, but it's in the Bible. Like Jesus washed feet right as he was about to die. When the end of all things was at hand for Jesus, what did he do? He drew close to the people closest to him and served them the Lord's Supper, loved them, washed their feet, cared for them, prayed, and went to die. Right? He didn't have a last rally. Right? He didn't have a last crusade. He got close to his guys and loved them because the end of all things was at hand. We're called to arm ourselves by the way we think, to embrace Christ-like suffering and live with loving urgency. We're, we're made of people who proclaim not just by words, but through our hope that Christ is sufficient, that His promises are true. Sojourners and exiles are what, in verse 10? Good stewards of God's varied grace. Elect exiles are stewards. We wait the tables of the world. We wait the tables of one another. And what we bring with every plate, the refill of every glass, is the proclamation of God's amazing grace. Right here is where the battle is. Right here. To realize that is worth it. To realize that is real and powerful and true. Right here is where we need ammo. We need grace to think like Jesus thought. Our minds don't need tweaked this morning, beloved. They need transformed. And only the gospel has the power to do that. So every text amplifies our need and displays the sufficiency of Jesus to us. Every text. There isn't a person in here this morning that doesn't need to come to Jesus. That may mean walking an aisle. It may not. But there isn't a person in here that doesn't need to come to Jesus, that doesn't need to rethink how they think. He's right here to answer the cries of our hearts, beloved, to graciously and perfectly renew His people. 
to save and sustain any and all who call upon him for him to forgive them of their sins to lay their rebellion down and find in him their hope of life I'm going to pray June is going to come we'll sing a song together then we'll take the Lord's Supper together but I'll be here if any of you need to come and pray God, I thank you for this time you've given to us. Lord, I thank you for your grace and mercy. And Lord, I do ask this morning that we all now consider, by the power of your Spirit, our need for Christ. Lord, would you be with us? Would you help us to do so? For your name, for your glory, for our salvation, for our peace, I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.